Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. you effectively managing your suppliers? It's a great question. It's a tough question. There's lots of nuances and details that go into this. Good news is Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I dive into the topic of supplier quality management on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. You know, a topic that is uh, pretty, you know, it's pretty common these days and, and probably has been, frankly, for a while for medical device companies is this topic of how and what and when should I, what should I be doing to manage my suppliers and I thought we could dive into that topic a little bit today. And you know, we've got there's some recent information about you know one type of supplier that we might use as a case study. But joining me on this conversation about supplier quality management is a good friend and common and frequent guest of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Chad. Always a pleasure to to speak with you and your audience. Terrific. So let's just, I guess, probably like we usually do, let's try to paint a, a picture of what is supplier quality management and why is it important. So so kick it off a little bit for us, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely, John. And I'll be happy to, to share sort of my thoughts, and I would be curious to hear yours as well. So as the phrase implies, supplier quality management, and by the way, I take a slightly broader interpretation of this, not just suppliers, but that would include vendors, even consultants, you know, anybody outside of the main company that's going to provide either products or services to that particular company that go either directly or indirectly into the final medical device, the product, that's what I would put under the general umbrella of supplier quality management. How do we manage those relationships between those in the company versus those outside the company. Now, that is a very, very broad brush, John. I suspect probably broader than most people interpret it, but that's the way I look at it. Yeah. And quite frankly, the reason why this is so important, John, is I'll remind you and our audience of one of my favorite sections of FDA's website, which is what I call the preamble to the quality system regulation. Let me just paraphrase two sentences from that. It says, manufacturers should use good judgment when developing their quality systems, and it's the responsibility of each to establish requirements, and that responsibility for meeting those requirements and those objectives, even though the work can be delegated, the responsibility cannot be delegated. So the reason why I wanted to mention that first in our discussion, John, is because Regardless if companies do work in-house or if they farm that work out, whether it's some aspect of manufacturing a widget that goes into your device, whether it's packaging or sterilizing of that device, whether it's providing consulting services like you and I in terms of quality or regulatory consulting, at the end of the day, it's the company's responsibility regardless of who does that work or where it's done. Yeah, That's my interpretation of supplier quality management, John. I would love to hear how yours and if it's any different. 
Yeah, and I just want to touch on that last point because I think that is really, really important. And let me uh, try to put it in a little bit of context. Oftentimes, for example, I know I do, and I'm guessing you do as well, uh, but I oftentimes talk to uh, companies who you know they're outsourcing uh, a lot of things to suppliers of of all sorts and shapes and sizes. But you know, a company may be designing and developing a product, but they may outsource uh, contract manufacturing to a supplier. They they may have a regulatory consultant that they're working with, and so on. But the contract manufacturer one is a is an interesting example because I've heard so many times where the company's like, "Well, I don't have to establish a quality management system for." for manufacturing and post-market and all that sort of thing, because I've delegated that to my contract manufacturer. And to reiterate your your earlier point, uh, folks, it's your company, it's your medical device, it's your name on the product. You have the ultimate responsibility for uh, assessing and managing and maintaining an effective quality management system. This is not something that you can delegate. Yes, of course, uh, you might expect that your your contract manufacturer and your other suppliers have their own internal uh, quality management system. But at the end of the day, it, it will be up to you. So I just wanted to, to stress that point. But as far as like my interpretation of supplier quality management, you know, when I started my career, the company that I worked with at that time was pretty much horizontally and vertically integrated. I mean, we even, uh, we were a catheter company. We even had our own sister company that made extrusions and manifolds and injection molded parts and components. Now that's not to say we didn't have suppliers, but you know, that this notion of supplier quality management, I wouldn't say it was foreign, but but it wasn't it didn't quite it didn't mean as much because, you know, everything we needed to do was for the most part under our roof, so to speak. But I think fast forward twenty some years later, um, we're certainly in a in an industry where you know, it's very, very common where you know, you're going to work with suppliers for parts, pieces, components, materials, services, software, so on and so forth. And it's really important that we as medical device companies are doing the proper due diligence to identify and evaluate and qualify and manage our suppliers uh, for all the things that they're doing. So you know, hopefully that adds a little bit of color to the topic. I think it does, John, and I think this is another one of those areas where most people, they think they understand supplier quality management. As you just alluded to, this is certainly not a new topic or a new idea. In fact, we have uh, a fair amount of regulation on the quality side to try to manage uh, our supplier quality issues. And yet, in spite of all of that, uh, or perhaps because of all of that, we still continue to have problems. Yeah. So I think it's kind of the you know maybe supplier quality management John on the on the quality side is kind of analogous to substantial equivalence on the regulatory side. Many people they think they understand what it means, but I really question whether or not in fact they do. And as an example, I thought we would talk about what I think is perhaps the poster child example of a supplier quality management failure, John. Yeah. What do you think that might be? <laughs> If anybody's been paying attention to the news in, well, recent weeks, but more, uh, I think there were more stories that came out on this uh, late spring, early summer on, on ethylene oxide sterilization. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for those in the audience that are not familiar, ethylene oxide or ETO is a very, very common, perhaps the most common way 
that we use, uh, that we sterilize medical devices today. It's been around, in fact, for a long time. ETO was discovered in 1859, but it's been used in medical devices and hospitals since at least the 1940s. That's as far as I've been able to track it back, John. Maybe it goes back even before that. And it works very well. It's good at penetrating packaging materials and killing bugs and so on. But on the other hand, it's not the nicest stuff, the most friendly stuff in the world. It tends to be very flammable, extremely carcinogenic and mutagenic. It's irritating. As a matter of fact, and I didn't know this myself until recently, John, but ETO is one of the key ingredients in thermobaric weapons. Oh, wow. So this is, this is nasty stuff. Yeah. So we've been using it for a long time. As I said, it penetrates packages. It doesn't leave any residue or anything like that. But from an environmental safety perspective, it's not very friendly stuff. And as a result of this, as you just alluded to, John, in the press over the last year, not just in the medical device press, but in the, in the, technic, uh, in the popular press as well, there have been a number of closures of ETO plants in various states, in Illinois and Michigan and Georgia, because of some of this ETO getting out into the environment. Interesting thing, John, if two more plants close and many states are considering legislation to ban ETO in their states, if two more plants close, then, then, then that means that we will exceed our excess capacity for sterilizing medical devices in FDA-approved facilities. In other words, if two more facilities close beyond what's already closed uh, to date, then we will not have enough capacity in the existing plants. And this is why uh, some people are now considering this a, a public health emergency. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you that in my history of working in this industry and all the products that I've worked on, I think every device that I've ever worked on has been sterilized with ETO, uh, with the exception of maybe just a few. Um, So, you know, let's call it 99% of the things that I've worked on uh, have all been ETO. And so for there to be this, uh, I guess, crisis, so to speak, on uh, ETO, then then, yeah, I, I know a lot of medical device companies are heavily relying on it. So Mike, what the heck happened? I mean, why the sudden change? I mean, this is a, a tech, uh, you know, a process, a methodology that's, to your point, been used, you know, at least since the 1940s, and has been around since the 1850s. Why all of a sudden have have things gone awry with ETO? It's a good question, John. It could be a combination of things. It could be our detection methods are better at uh, at detecting even very low exposures. It could be that some of these um, facilities have gotten a little bit sloppy, so to speak, in containing this information, you know, um, this, this material, rather. You know, one of the things that I think it's important for the audience to understand, John, we obviously talk a lot in our discussions about FDA. Well, when it comes to ETO and ETO sterilization, obviously FDA regulates, has, has uh, authority over the actual sterilization itself. In other words, Part of our validation, as you know, John, is we have to show that our method of sterilization, whether it's ETO or something else, uh, is effective, and we have to show that to the FDA. But when it comes to ETO leaking out into the environment, that's not really an FDA concern. That's an EPA concern. Yeah. And so not to get too much into the politics here, but there's a little bit of a, of a turf war 
that's that's now starting to happen between EPA and FDA in terms of you know who should regulate this and how. Yeah, and and I I don't suspect we'll t- we'll dive into that uh, regulatory agency turf war too much today. But I want to, you know, to, I'm glad we're bringing up this this example because I think it's a wonderful case study on you know supplier quality management. And I thought we could maybe dive into that a little bit. So you know, knowing that there's issues uh, with ETO and limited capacity and resources that are available, and you know, maybe this is something that's going to be going away and then not to uh, near future, what do I do? I mean, how, how do I manage this critical supplier to my medical device supply chain? How, how, what should I be doing as a, as a company if, if I'm stuck with ETO and, and I've got to figure out what to do next? Well, first of all, John, uh, I don't think that ETA is going to go away completely, at least not any soon. It's kind of like, you know, internal combustion engines, you know, with gasoline. Everybody agrees that gasoline is not the most uh, efficient, most friendly fuel, and there are alternatives, but it's taking many years, you know, decades to, to, to change that. And I also think that in the short term, ETO, many people kind of consider it as a, as a necessary evil. In other words, it's like airports and nuclear power plants. We all know that we need them, but do you, John, want to live next to one? Probably not. Um, so <laughs> no, because I've seen. I mean, I've I've been to to companies that have uh, you know, ETO uh, facilities and operations, and I mean, a lot of times these things are built into the side of a hill, <laughs> and the, you know they've got concrete walls that are several feet thick. But you know, you mentioned a lot of the the the, the not so good aspects of ETO, like not the least of which is flammability. I mean, I would say even above flammability. Uh, something goes wrong, you could have an explosion, um, and uh, not not the least of which are some of the environmental concerns, the carcinogenics, and, and so on. But no, I wouldn't want to. Yeah. So, so, so to focus our conversation, John, maybe we should dig into a little bit about why I'm specifically calling this a supplier quality management failure, because some people might think that's overly harsh. And uh, you know me, John. I I purposely try to be a bit provocative for for a number of reasons, not the least of which is to get people to think and to start talking about these issues. And what I want people to understand is, even if you're working in a medical device company where your particular device does not use ETO, let's say you use heat or gamma or some other form of method of sterilization, the underlying factors, the root cause, if you will, to use the engineering vernacular, has nothing to do with ETO. I don't think ETO is the problem when we look at it from the supplier quality management perspective. I think it's a super superficial manifestation of a problem. And so when we try to solve the ETO problem, we're doing nothing more than putting on a Band-Aid on a much deeper supplier quality problem. Yeah. So uh, th- that's what I'd like to dig into here. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and folks, so we'll, we'll send you some additional links and articles uh, you can consume and, and dive into the, the specific nuances that, that are going on with ETO. But, you know, I, I think to your point, you know, let's imagine that I'm a medical device company and, and I need to have a sterile medical device. I mean, maybe it's good to kind of walk people what I should be doing. I mean, should I be looking at ETO? Should I be looking at gamma? 
Should I be looking at at uh, plasma or you know hydrogen peroxide? You know what? what I guess kind of let's let's dive into the the flow here a little bit and get people thinking about the types of questions that they should be asking when I trying to identify different suppliers for the types of things that they're looking at. Well, the short answer to your question, John, is absolutely you should be considering all of those methods without getting too much into the engineering detail here. Uh, it's going to be contingent on the device, both the material of the device as well as the geometry of the device. For example, if you have a, a very long catheter, uh, if you uh, use a sterilization method where the, the material, the sterilization um, substance cannot penetrate the wall of the catheter, then how do you know, how do you ensure that that substance is going to get all the way in to the through the length of the catheter? In other words, it's only going to diffuse a certain distance. And so, therefore, you might actually have to help it. You might actually have to, to blow it through. So, bottom line, you have to consider the geometric uh, parameters. You have to consider the material parameters. Some materials are more conducive to certain methods of sterilization than others. For example, metal devices... Let's think about a quick example, John, a bare metal coronary stent, not something fancy like a drug loading stent, but a bare metal coronary stent. You can hit that with anything that you want, with yeah. heat, with gamma, with ETO. You ain't going to change the stent in any way. Right. But once you talk about polymeric devices or even better, uh, you know, I do a lot of work in, in, in biomaterials, John. Once you talk about bioabsorbable devices, or the quintessential example with combination products, as I just mentioned, uh, like a drug loading stent, for example, um, hitting it with a, uh, with a conventional sterilization technique may not be applicable. And, and the quintessential example, not to get too far off on, on the tangent, John, is putting a biologic on a device, for sure. uh, a protein, a monoclonal antibody, or a gene inside of a virus or a cell or something like that. So the simple answer to your question, John, is, we should be considering all of those. But again, I, I want to focus on the quality failure here. So just to sort of lead the witness, you know, John, that from a supplier quality perspective, we are, quote unquote, required to identify second sources for vendors for critical suppliers. And, and that, you know, most people would consider if you have a ETO sterilized device, your ETO vendor will be a critical supplier. Do most companies um, qualify other companies in advance? And take that a step further, John. Does that second source need to be the same ETO uh, provider? In other words, if you have an ET, if you have a device that's being sterilized via ETO uh, with one particular vendor, is it sufficient to identify a second source who also uses ETO? The vast majority of companies, in my experience, John, and you can either agree or disagree, but the vast majority of companies, they do exactly that. Yeah. And so as a result, you're really, you know, you're, you're creating a weak link in the chain because when you have a problem with the underlining method, regardless of how many people are using that method, in this case, it's ETO, but it could be anything. It could be a type of extrusion. It could be, you know, whatever. When you have a problem with the underlining method, just being able to switch to somebody else that uses the same method might not solve any problems. Do you, do you understand what I mean, John? I, I totally do. And and so let me see if I can reframe that a bit for or make sure I'm tracking with you, okay? But um, you know, I I qualify XYZ Sterilization Incorporated, whatever, you know, and and, and I do so 
with their ETO method of sterilization. And so they're critical because obviously my device is single use and and must be sterile. So, you know, that by de facto makes them probably one of the most critical suppliers uh, with my medical device. So but because of that, I should be qualifying second sources. Uh, so uh, the one path could be, well, you know, maybe I need to find another uh, supplier of ETO. Uh, ABC Sterilization Incorporated, uh, they also do ETO. And so I could qualify them, which I think to your point, that's probably the most common. Or I could think about, well, maybe I do uh, a different sterilization method. Maybe I look at at Elemental uh, P Gamma Incorporated, you know, that to do gamma sterilization. But I have to consider all the the options and and just saying, oh, I'm going to use this ETO supplier as my critical one, and this ETO supplier as my backup. That might not cut the mustard. That might not be a good <laughs> risk based approach. I could not agree more, John, and one of the reasons why we're having this discussion today is because we are really talking about the exception rather than the rule. And let me, for our audience, uh, illustrate why I say that based on statistics right out of the FDA. And and here it is. Only 2% of medical devices that are on the market today have another validated sterilization method. Only 2%. So... 98% of the companies out there are not doing what it is that you and I are suggesting. It's not enough, in my opinion anyway, to simply meet the regulation that is tick the regulatory box by having another supplier identified. If that other supplier identified is essentially a copy, if they're, again, to use the regulatory pun, John, substantially equivalent to your primary supplier, then you really you've mitigated your risk in the sense of that primary supplier going out of business. But if that entire portion of the industry has a problem, like we're seeing with ETO now, you really haven't bought yourself any. Yeah, I mean, so I guess practically speaking, I mean, like let's sterilization is a good example. You know, to to qualify a sterilization vendor and and specifically the process that might be used, the sterilization process that might be used on my my medical device, that could be a very expensive endeavor. So, you know, if, if I'm going to be spending tens, tens of thousands of dollars just on the testing and, and I'm going to be sacrificing, you know, maybe hundreds of products to that process and it's going to take, you know, eight, 12 weeks or something like that, that's a pretty costly endeavor to, to have multiple methods and multiple suppliers. Is that any excuse? Well, <laughs> is it an excuse? Uh, it, well, listen, as we've talked about many times, John, medicine, medicine is a business in every sense, so we don't have infinite resources. But let's talk about this from a business perspective a little bit, because one of the industry short courses that I teach from time to time is a three-day short course on supplier quality management. And these are issues that a lot of companies struggle with. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, John, you go to a a potential vendor who you think is going to be a second source. And you say to them, look, we want to use you as a backup. In other words, we want you to jump through all of these hoops to go through this validation to show that you do it just as well as our primary supplier. But oh, by the way, we're not going to give you any business unless something happens to our primary supplier. You know what I mean? That's not a very easy sell 
to make. They're basically going to say, well, go pound sand. You know, we're not going to waste our time and money working with you only to be used as a backup. So one of the suggestions that I make to companies, John, and this is not rocket science to me, this is common sense. you got to make this a win-win. So you got to go to them and say, look, we want you to be our backup supplier, but we're going to pay you the you know X amount of money to go through the validation process, or we want you to be our backup supplier, but we're going to guarantee that we're going to give you, say, 30% or 40% of our business over the next two years or five years or something. In other words, this is a business negotiation, John, and you have to, sure. be, uh, you have to be, uh, make it a win-win for both sides. Sure, absolutely, and and I think this is really important that you know that I really have to assess um, you know my product and my processes and and where I'm leveraging suppliers. Uh, and I mean, not not everything in your device may necessarily qualify as critical. Um, so you know, do spend some time looking at you know what what am I what, what components are involved in this? Where am I getting them from? What kind of services am I getting? You know, like a contract manufacturer, probably a critical supplier. A sterilization provider, probably a critical supplier. And it might even be like component specific components. I might be buying a microprocessor from some electronics manufacturer. That might be a critical component too. And and I need to be prepared, you know, for you know having second sources and making sure I'm doing the proper due diligence on all of these things. I can't just say, well, it's expensive and it costs a, a lot of money and it's going to take a lot of time. So I'm just going to, you know, have a single point of failure if that supplier is no longer able to do that that thing that I need them to do. And and John, you bring up a, a good point, which perhaps is the topic of a different discussion, and that is, how do you decide uh, amongst your suppliers? which are the critical ones and which are not. I was in a company a while ago. This is a large company. They uh, had a total of some 1,800 or so suppliers. Uh, that's fine. I didn't have a problem with that. What I thought was interesting is they identified about 1,750 of them as critical. In other words, almost all of their suppliers yeah. were critical. And so I said, that's nuts. You know, you can't treat them all the same. So I suggested you have to triage them and start, instead of saying, you know, critical versus non-critical, we have to have maybe, you know, three or four levels of, of criticality. Yeah. One of the things I just thought I would mention quick, John, is FDA is trying to uh, encourage improvement in this area because this is a uh, not just a potential public health crisis. It is a potential political uh, public relations disaster for the industry as well as the FDA. And they're trying to stay ahead of this. So they've created a couple of uh, innovation challenges in this area. One of them is in the identification of new sterilization methods and technologies. In other words, they created this program and one of the companies that I work with submitted an application to this particular challenge to come up with sterilization methods that do not involve ETO. And then the second challenge that they came up with is uh, an innovation challenge to reduce ethylene oxide emissions. And the reason why I thought that was interesting to me, John, is because that's really not an FDA concern. You know, as I said earlier, FDA is concerned about the sterilization of the actual device. But if ETO gets out into the environment and kills some rabbits or causes, you know, cancer to people or something like that, that's an EPA concern. So bottom line, yeah. the government and the FDA are trying to create incentives. But the question remains, John, is this FDA's problem or is this 
industry's problem. I think we should take responsibility ourselves and yeah. not rely on our government to solve it for us. I mean, yeah, I think so. And I don't know if I'm encouraged or discouraged that there are these, these uh, design innovative challenges that are being presented um, regardless it is and is at this point in time but yeah I do think it is our our obligation as medical device companies to and specifically you know I, I'll put the challenge out there to those companies who are providing these sorts of services I mean obviously the demand for medical device sterilization is huge and and is not going to be decreasing anytime soon so um, you know hopefully there's already a lot of of uh, measures in place to try to address these things. But you said something a moment ago that uh, I want to peel back and maybe a layer to uh, that's, that's on the broader topic of supplier quality management. I mean, we, you and I mentioned the word critical supplier a few times today, but you talked about having maybe multiple levels of, uh, of criticality, if you will, from a supply chain perspective because I've seen a lot of companies, they they'll have they'll say, "Oh, that that supplier is critical. That supplier is critical." And, you know, pretty soon to your point, you know, they have eighteen hundred suppliers and they're all marked as critical. That's not that's not really pragmatic. Um, you know, I've seen some companies they'll have, well, either it is or it isn't critical. But you said, I think I heard you say you suggested maybe have a multiple different uh, levels of criticality. So can you maybe speak a, a moment about that? Yeah, that's exactly right, John. Uh, and this is something that I also recommend, even though it's not required. Uh, with all the companies that I work with, something to put into their quality system. Look, for all the reasons that we've talked about today, as well as others, simply having two choices, having a binary decision, critical versus non-critical, is not enough. Because the reason the, the reason why that's important, how you define it as critical or non-critical, will largely influence how close you keep an eye on them in terms of your, your, your audits of them and, and incoming inspection of any products or services and so on. So breaking the universe into three or four or perhaps five different levels as opposed to just two and putting the criteria what you know what constitutes a level one versus level two versus level three in your quality system uh, I think makes an awful lot of sense you know we've talked before how I don't think that we should treat all complaints the same even though that's what FDA inspectors typically want. To me, that makes absolutely no sense. We need to triage those complaints. It's just like when you go to the emergency room, hopefully somebody that's having a heart attack or an ischemic stroke, they're going to get treated very quickly. And somebody that's got a, you know, a splinter in their finger, they're going to be sitting around for many hours or maybe even a few days. Right. right. But that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. I, I would take the same approach uh, here when it comes to assessing the the, the criticality, if you will. Maybe the better phrase yeah. to think about it is the level of importance of that particular supplier. Yeah. Uh, and part of it that goes into it is is how easy would it be for some, if that particular supplier goes out of business or something, how easy would it be to you to switch to somebody else? I worked with a company a few years ago, John, where this particular company was relying on a very, very small mom and pop machine shop literally working out of somebody's garage to make a critical component of their device. And long story short, there were not many other machine shops on earth, apparently, that had the capability to do this. So that particular company was at a very high risk. On one hand, they have this very critical function that apparently can't be reproduced easily by a lot of other places. And at the same time, it's a little mom and pop kind of a thing working out of their garage. 
God forbid, you know, somebody gets hit by a bus or a tree falls down and takes out their garage. What's going to happen to this company? They're going to be in a world of hurt. For sure. For sure. And I, I think that's really, really important for people to realize is the level of criticality of your supplier should be commensurate with the risk that that, that supplier uh, component part uh, material, service, what have you, plays to your device and to your company. So definitely use a risk-based approach uh, when assessing your different levels of criticality. But the higher the risk, you know, that means probably means more oversight that uh, and qualification and, and monitoring that I should be doing. And it doesn't probably, it definitely means that I should be doing more from uh, oversight and, and management of that supplier to make sure that they can continue to provide the, the the right level of quality uh, that I define in specifications and so on to my products and processes. So this is why having those those different levels of, of criticality is really important because those different levels dictate what you should be doing uh, to qualify and monitor those suppliers. And, and to use a very, very simple, probably a, a laughable example, John, is if you have a supplier, a vendor, for example, who you hire to come in at night and empty the trash cans and mop the floors and so on. You probably don't need to, uh, how do you want to say, you know, audit them, if you will, to the same level of degree than if you're making a class three medical device that's going into somebody's body for the rest of their life. And if somebody screws up, somebody could die. You know, I hear you use the phrase a moment ago, John, risk-based approach. I hear lots and lots of people use this phrase in the context of many different discussions. But as a subject matter expert for FDA and risk, I see see very, very little evidence that we actually take a risk-based approach to almost anything. You know, it's just... just I know, it's crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) So maybe we should wrap this up, John, with some final thoughts for our audience. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'll start. I'll let you uh, conclude if that's okay. Um, yeah, the, the, I want to you know kind of pick up on Mike's comment about risk-based approach. I mean, the, to me, supplier quality management is, is uh, I don't want to trivialize it. It's not easy per se, but it is a natural uh, process that lends itself very well to a risk-based approach. And I think taking you know the tips and pointers that Mike and I have provided on this this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast you know, having some sort of stratification or, or multiple levels of criticality, it's going to, it's not going to be, you know, obvious uh, or or maybe natural per se, but it is a really good way to start to build in risk-based uh, thought processes into your supplier quality management. And for each of those levels, you know, you, you probably need to do something a little bit different as far as the, the level of oversight and control. So, Definitely consider stratifying your your suppliers into multiple different risk levels or criticality levels as it relates to your products and processes. All right, Mike, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that's a great takeaway. If I could just add a couple, first and foremost, and I, I hope I stressed this enough at the beginning of our discussion today, John, anybody that dismisses this case because they say, well, this is it regarding ETO and I don't use ETO for my device. With all due respect, you've missed the entire gist of the conversation that John and I were trying to have today, because although the example uh, we're using here is the ETO situation, because it's such a common example today, the underlining factors, the root cause, if you will, is applicable to medical devices across the board. And let me also just remind everybody of the, the one portion of the sentence that I shared at the beginning from the preamble to the quality system regulation on FDA's website, 
although you might delegate the work, whether it's manufacturing or sterilization or some other kind of product or service, the responsibility cannot be delegated. So you can't just push this off on your vendors and the vendor screws up and say, well, that's the vendor's problem. That's not my problem. Specifically, when it comes to lessons to be learned on the quality side, once again, and John, you and I have talked about this uh, so many times, don't just follow the regulation like a recipe, ticking boxes off on a, a form. Try to understand the intent of that regulation. Why um, pre-qualifying and, or validating suppliers in advance is important. Why having a second source, or in some cases, a third or an even fourth source is important. Not just from a from a patient risk perspective, but from a business risk perspective. And from a business perspective, as I said earlier, you have to be willing to work with these vendors to make it a win-win. Because I said, if you go to them and say, we want you to jump through all these hoops, but oh, by the way, we're not going to give you any business unless the guys that we really like, you know, can't service our needs anymore. That's not going to fly. It's kind of like, and I'm hesitant to use this metaphor in a a podcast like this, John, but it's kind of like, you know, when you're dating, you know, and a a guy says to a woman, well, I want you to be my girlfriend only if this other woman says no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's probably not going to fly. Yeah. and, And the last thing is, you know, be careful, at least be consciously aware if you, are sterilizing your device with only one method, whether it's ETO or something else, and you have not at least considered the possibility of using other methods, you are at a certain degree of risk for getting into a situation like this, John. You know, they say those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. So right now we're talking about this with ETO, but don't be surprised if we yeah. you know, have similar issues you know, having nothing to do with sterilization methods, perhaps in the future, I can just about guarantee it's going to continue to happen. Uh, oh, for sure. I mean, if uh, recent history, I'm I'm reminded, uh, as you said that uh, a, a few years ago, there was a challenge with um, some packaging, flexible packaging materials. There was a shortage of some of those things. So yeah, folks, there there will be something else that you'll take that you might be taking for granted right now in your supply chain that uh, really. Uh, I, I want you to have a second thought about it and make sure that you're diving into that and evaluating that appropriately. So um, anyway, I want to thank Mike Drews for being my guest on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. So thank you so much, Mike. Folks, I want to remind you when it comes to things, quality management system, Greenlight's got you covered. We are the only EQMS software solution in the world that's designed specifically and only for the medical device industry. It's been, this product has been designed by actual medical device professionals. So, you know, as far as helping you manage your supply chain and all the documents and records, as well as all of your policies and procedures, as well as workflows for design, development, quality events, such as CAPAs, complaints, and so on, uh, you're in the right place. Just go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more and we'd be happy to help you with your quality management system improvements and efficiency. So as always, thank you so much for being a listener of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.